Hello and welcome to the Deeper Podcast, a podcast all about unleashing courageous love in small and big ways. I'm Reverend Sean, one of your hosts, and today I'm joined by one of our hosts, Reverend Elaine, my colleague. Hi, Elaine. Hi, Sean. How are you doing? I'm happy to be with you. You're ready to exercise some shame? I'm ready to exorcise some shame, yes. I was like playing with that play on words and my mouth, like exercise, exercise. And like they have a similar meaning, right? Exercising that breaks us down to get stronger, exercise, banishing bad spirits. Kind of a fun play on words. Absolutely. I'm all about breaking down the shame. <laughs> to kind of frame the conversation, we're in this Living with Ghost series, which is all about how the past can kind of hang on and limit our experience of the present and our future. And so today we're playing in the realm of shame and i've been realizing how how often we shame each other in our culture we comment on each other's bodies right like have you lost or gained weight well i put it tosses out to the staff team of like comments and things that invoke shame one person on their staff team said that when people say to parents of young kids treasure every moment <laughs> you're you're like laughing in a knowing way that could really evoke a sense of guilt and like, like you're overwhelmed, you're exhausted and kind of pissed off that you have all of this to carry and you're somehow supposed to treasure it at the same time. It's like, oh, I must be a terrible person if I can't treasure every moment of being, you know, an emotional and physical provider for another being. What are, what are some places that you notice that we kind of toss around shame that we might not think about? Yeah, that treasure every moment resonates with me. And the, the first thing that came to mind is just these comments of toxic positivity, like kind of the good vibes only culture, I find, you know, I have felt shut down and shamed in response to that, which, you know, I get it. I get that people are kind of trying to protect themselves by trying to be encouraging or maintain a sense of, of positivity and onward and upward. But I do think that lots of times trying to keep things on the positive or look at the bright side or see the silver lining can actually just totally invalidate what somebody's experiencing, which can feel kind of like backhand shaming or like, hmm, what is this bad feeling I'm experiencing? And I feel like that's come up a lot in the pandemic, just in people's different coping styles. Something else I find really compelling and that I find myself very tempted towards is shaming people around vaccination, masking, these things that are very serious, they're public health concerns. And the reality is the shame doesn't work. And that's really sticky. I have a lot of compassion <laughs> for people trying to use their shame tools to get to change other people's behavior. And, you know, this is easier said than done, but I'm trying to remember that sharing our stories, you know, whatever it is, the toxic behavior we're trying to change, whether it's, you know, encountering our racist uncle at Thanksgiving or, you know, whatever it is we're coming up against and that sharing our personal stories and hearing a personal story from somebody you actually know is so much more compelling than, you know, a shaming meme on Facebook that's going to be seen by all your friends who agree. Doesn't always feel as good. That one in the moment. It's very cathartic. Yeah, it does feel good. I mean, I feel like you've already gotten a little bit into it, but we're gonna we're gonna listen to you kind of drop some 
some kind of mad wisdom about shame in a moment. But before we do that, like, why is this topic sticky for you? Oh, I mean, parenting and personing in the pandemic. The PPP. That's, parenting. PPP. Yeah. Personal, the pandemic, yeah. That's why it's sticky for me. And honestly, when I was approaching this topic, um, I wondered if maybe I didn't have the right kind of shame to be able to adequately address shame. You were feeling ashamed at your shame? <laughs> I guess my shame status. I feel like the place where I am actively trying to identify and name my shame feelings is just around the day-to-day stuff of just feeling really in inadequate on every front, basically. So a lot of my pandemic experience has just been like, wow, okay, on a daily basis, how am I feeling inadequate? As a parent, check. At work, check. As a spouse, check. As a person running a household, check. Self-care, check. It's taken me a while to even be able to label and understand some of those experiences as shame experiences, so I know what to do with them. Can I tell you a story that's just yeah, coming dear. for me? So for the past like two and a half weeks, we've been stuck in our house together because of a COVID exposure, because my three-year-old was sick, because I had booster side effects, because my nine-year-old was really sick for like a week. It wasn't COVID. And I basically had to say, keep dropping stuff. Just say no to this, no to that. I can't do it. And at first I was feeling really proud of myself. Like, yeah, I'm doing the self-care thing. And then I was like, all right, I guess I have to keep doing this. And then it just started to feel like garbage. I just felt like I was letting everybody down. That's the zone I got into. And I got to this breaking point uh, last Friday afternoon I had a whole bunch of things going simultaneously. And my daughter's teacher, who is a wonderful human being, did us the kindness of putting together this folder of materials for her to take home. And she texted me on Friday afternoon to tell me it was ready. I won't bore you with the details, but basically I wasn't able to go pick it up. And that was just the final thing. I felt so bad that she had gone to all this effort and here's one more thing I can't do. So I left the house and I went to go pick up my son from preschool. And I thought, you know, I'll just go drive by the elementary school just in case someone's there and I could pick it up. And I parked in front of the elementary school and all the lights were off, except there was this one light by the front door and it looked like one headlight. And I walked towards it and it was a man on a bike. And I recognized him as the principal of the school. And he said hi to me. And asked me if he could help me. And I told him, I just need to get this folder for my daughter in the front office. I know you're trying to leave. You're the last person leaving school on a Friday. And he not only let me in and gave me the folder, but Sean, he was so kind to me. And I was just trying to not cry, ugly cry in front of him because his kindness and he was genuinely interested and who I was and where I came from and what was going on with us. Why am I telling you this story? It was this, you know, I'm telling you the story because it was so important in that moment to feel seen with compassion, 
gosh, I'm just tearing up now. And as I was driving by, as I was driving away, I just thought, you know, it's it can be so trite to say we never know the impact that we have on people. But it's so true that we catch each other in these moments. I thought he probably thinks I'm totally nuts because I was choked up the whole time he was being nice to me. Uh, but he turned it all around with his kindness and he really went out of his way for me. So anyway, that's the story on my mind that I wanted to share that I think, you know, sometimes we can help each other through those everyday shame spots just by being interested in someone else's experience and taking the time. Well, and there's like a recognition that we show up in every moment with like that legacy of, of of shame and stuff like tangled in. You are showing up choking back tears, but other times people are showing up like being defensive or being closed because of that that feeling of shame. And so how do we respond in a way that doesn't, that allows an opening for something to shift in us, in others? And that, you know, kindness, curiosity, you know, wonder are usually good tools to do that. They really are. Yeah, it's so true. We show up in every moment with this legacy of compounded stories and experiences. And it's amazing when we can even have some awareness about that for ourselves. What are we bringing into each space? I think we should listen into what you had to say, uh, and then we'll come back in a minute. Okay. So I recently signed up to do something for the very first time. It's something kind of outside of my comfort zone. I signed up to be a coach for a team of fourth graders for Odyssey of the Mind. If you're not familiar, Odyssey of the Mind is an extracurricular school activity where you're on a team with other kids your age working to develop a creative solution to a very broadly defined problem. So it's team-based creative problem solving, basically. And there's a final competition in which your team presents your solution to a problem as an eight-minute performance. Now, I've always been really a people person to the core, but I've never considered myself a kid person. I love children, I have children, I really value children, but the realm of childhood has never been my comfort zone. I've always been more comfortable in the company of adults, really even as a child. So I've been asking myself lately, why on earth did I sign up to coach this team? Now, I could tell you a lot of reasons for this, and they would all be true. But the other day I had an aha my desire to be involved in my own kids' fourth grade Odyssey of the Mind experience probably bears some relationship to my own fourth grade experience in the same program. Do you want to know what my primary Odyssey of the Mind memory is? It's one of those memories that's really, really clear because I must have revisited it a million times for some reason. The memory is this. We were creating a performance that had a clown theme. And all of the kids on the team were really stumped about what to name a country 
that is home to clowns. And then I had this insight and I shouted out, chuckle Slovakia. And this one girl on the team who we'll call Anne, she just laughed. She proclaimed that I was brilliant. And for that one moment, Anne shone her favor on me. And this was very significant because for the rest of the time, Anne pretty much alternated between tolerating me and hating my guts. Anne was very smart and very pretty with long blonde hair and expensive name brand clothes. Anne was a powerful personality. One of her signature moves was that when we had a substitute teacher, Anne would routinely organize the entire class to do something that would humiliate and confuse the substitute. So she'd pass around a note, for example, with a specific time for all the students to start coughing or all stand up and go sharpen our pencils. And the subs always looked like they wanted to cry. Anne was in my class at school. She was on my Odyssey of the Mind team, and she was friends with basically all my friends. So when Anne was not there, playing with my friends was relaxed and fun. But whenever Anne was present, she held power in that group, and she set the rules. If she laughed, we laughed. If she rejected something or rejected someone, well, then it just wasn't worthy. The trouble was that I was the person who was often being rejected. I could not really figure out why. It seemed to have something to do with me being too loud, too enthusiastic, too silly, too big, too unrefined, too weird. I'll never know why I was the target of her eye rolls and sarcasm why I was the conspicuous not-receiver of certain invitations. I was the person who was definitely trying the hardest to please Anne, but I always fell short. I desperately tried to identify what was wrong with me so that I could root it out and eliminate it, and then Anne would accept me. But none of my strategies worked. Not the detailed map of popularity that ev of every kid in my grade that I curated in my mind for the sole purpose of checking how my ranking compared to other people's. Not the hyper-focus on acquiring name-brand clothing or getting my bangs just right. Not the dieting to get my taller, larger body to become something smaller and more ideal. Not the observing and mimicking other kids trying to learn how to get it right, to weed out whatever it was that was so wrong with me. So I think I volunteered to coach this team because on some level, I wanted to protect my younger fourth grade bullied self and protect my current fourth grade kids somehow. I wanted to protect my daughter from one of my shame stories. Shame comes in all shapes and sizes. Shame is so human and it is so awful. We humans are wired for love and belonging. It's a core part of our humanity and our soul. And so feeling totally unworthy of love and belonging is a suffering like nothing else. 
Shame feels like there's something fundamentally wrong with us, like we're defective, like there's something intrinsic about us that places us outside the circle of worthiness. Shame is different from guilt because guilt says that we did something bad and shame says that we just are bad. We aren't born with shame. Shame builds slowly and it runs deep. In his book, The Wild Edge of Sorrow, Francis Weller compares the way that shame takes root to that common high school chemistry experiment of making rock candy, that confection of lumpy, crystallized sugar on a string. Weller writes, the experiment involves taking a glass of water and tying a string to a pencil and placing it in the glass of water. And then we slowly add sugar to the water, creating a solution. And nothing happens. Nothing happens. And then when the saturation point is reached, the sugar molecules begin to crystallize around the string. And that is how it is with shame. We can endure a certain number of times when the connection is broken between us and the people we love and need. We can digest a certain volume of disappointments and criticism. But at some point, with enough repetition, the internal stories associated with those events, they reach a saturation point and fictions crystallize into things that feel like truths. With shame, we internalize fictions and experience them as truths that we aren't lovable, that we're responsible for the bad thing that happened, that we can never do anything right, or that we simply don't matter as much as other people. And we end up with a sense of some stain on our soul that if we ever shared it, if we ever let it see the light of day or talked about it, we would be utterly rejected, cast out, even somehow annihilated. Our fear of exposure moves us to bury our shame stories way down. Those stories of abandonment, rejection, violation, or cruelty. And we may be able to bury it deep enough to silence the shame most of the time. Yet our shame still haunts us, and we know it's there. Shame is the worst kind of ghost. And the awful truth is that shame actually thrives underground. Shame loves being buried. It loves that secrecy. Shame gets stronger in the dark. Whispering to us to push people away, to lash out, to talk to ourselves or treat ourselves in punishing ways. And so we get just stuck in this shame place, feeling terrified to be exposed for how unacceptable we truly are. And yet we are also so deeply longing to be seen, seen with compassion and understanding. And this is a place where we can get stuck sometimes for years or for a whole lifetime, not wanting to be exposed, but also just desperate to feel really seen and loved. I think 
this shame stuckness is a place that a lot of us are encountering this fall when I see so many of us feeling on edge, feeling the ghosts of last year's COVID winter encroaching and wondering what this year will bring, feeling our animal selves hunkering down in response to the dwindling light and colder temperatures. And it is hard out there right now. People getting up in the faces of healthcare workers and educators and school board members with pushback about vaccines and masks, just blowing their stress and frustration into others. I know that here in our Foothills community, we've been grieving big losses and living with maladies of mind, body, and spirit. This fall has been hard for so many of us. And this can really kick up our old familiar shame stories. Those voices that tell us that we're not good enough, that we don't really belong, that what we're feeling is our fault. These are the shame ghosts that are haunting us. But there's good news, and the good news is that there is something to be done. But it might just be the last thing you want to do. Shame resilience begins with sharing our story. Shame loses its power when we pull back the curtains and let in the light of day. Shame cannot stand having words put to it and being spoken aloud. Shame just shrinks up and withers when someone else moves in to help us hold the story with compassion. This move of naming and sharing our shame, it can feel like an absolute impossibility because our shame tells us the lie that we're defective and it's the worst possible thing to potentially expose ourselves. Someone might find out about us. But when we feel our shame activated and flared up, when something happens and we feel our throat constrict and we feel that sinking feeling in our gut and we just want to go hide in a hole, the best way to cast it out is to find someone safe and trustworthy to name it with. Busting up our shame looks like talking about it, describing all its pieces and feelings in the presence of someone who can listen to us deeply and talk through it in order to help us break that shame down and diffuse its power. Someone who can hold complexity Someone who knows us for both our struggles and challenges and our resilience and power. Someone we trust. I want to note here that taking this leap can be so terrifying and feel tremendously awkward. And it can take a lot of time and practice and self-compassion and false starts and do-overs. And I know it's easy for me to just stand here and make this radical suggestion, but you are worth it. You deserve to live a robust and joyful and open-hearted life. You are so much more than the lies of your shame stories. Sharing our shame, it's not only life-giving and relieving and courageous. Sharing our shame saves lives. In a world wracked with depression and anxiety and pandemic pain and climate anguish, 
the world needs us to practice making it okay to talk about shame. Because the alternative is being shackled to lies that diminish and immobilize us, and that doesn't serve anyone or anything. Every time we put our words to our shame, we are also modeling for someone else that that is another way, that we are also a safe person for naming and diffusing shame with. I think of the friend that I call regularly to share my worst moments. In fact, I just called her this week in a spell of feeling inadequate and embarrassed and like I couldn't do anything right. And I realized that she's the person I call in those moments because basically she went first and showed me the ropes. She plunged into the deep end of the pool first and she shared her demons with me, for which truly I had only compassion. And I felt so honored that she would share so vulnerably with me that she would trust me. And eventually I realized that I probably couldn't scare her off if I shared with her what was on my heart too. And do you know what happened? What happened was a deeper friendship that became a place where we could both ghost bust the demons that haunt us. And together we have practiced creating this force field that unmasks shame and hateful self-talk just for the sham that it is. It's a life-giving practice. This is a life-giving practice every time we put words to our shame we practice dismantling, dehumanizing lies that are keeping us paralyzed and small. When we talk about the elephant in the room of our soul, only to discover that we did not die from humiliation and horror, but that we're still here, feeling exposed and astonished and relieved, we start to see that there are so many other elephants to be named, and that speaking our truth, the truth of our experience, it's powerful. It's a kind of fuel that diminishes regimes, that gives people a reason to live. Shame just has no use, and it's everywhere. And as Unitarian Universalists, we just can't stand for it. It's against our religion to tolerate shaming, because we know we are all worthy. You are worthy. We're each worthy. And we each have an essential connection to that big sacred everything that no one can mess with. No one can touch that sacred spark. Let us be the people who have a practice of putting words to our shame. Let us be that people who are called to never tolerate shaming. Not in our schools, not in our families, not on social media, not by our elected officials or public servants. Let us be a people who live each day anchored in the conviction that every soul is sacred and squarely located within the circle of worthiness. Before I wrap up today, I thought you might want to know where the story with Anne ended. In the sixth grade, I was getting ready one night for a sleepover with my group of friends, and I got a phone call informing me that I was not invited to the sleepover after all. I never imagined that this could actually happen. And so I cried and I cried. I remember my mom being really sweet with me. And I now know that she was also overflowing with maternal rage. 
And the next day at school, I didn't have a lunch table to sit at anymore. I'd been totally dumped by my group of friends. So I walked over to another table of girls from my music class, and I explained to them that there wasn't a place for me on my old lunch table, and I asked if I could sit with them. And they smiled and showed me a chair. Over the course of the week, I eventually told them everything that happened, about the phone call, the bullying, how it always felt so worthless around Anne. And they were so kind. They made a place for me at the table, quite literally, welcomed me in, and I began my journey of finding my people, which included lots of dead ends and surprises, but it was always better than desperately striving to please. It was always better than the unwinnable, unfigureoutable conundrum of what was wrong with me. You are worthy. You are beautiful. You are worthy. This is our truth. We are all in this together, doing the holy work of casting out shame and calling in compassion. May it be so. Amen. There's so much in what you shared. And I know on Sunday, as I was watching people encounter your, your, your sermon online, there was just this like bouquet of appreciation for the naming of this reality that so many people face. And you talk about how sharing that shame, that shedding of the light allows sharing of our story, allows the shame to have a little bit less power. That sharing of our, of our shame stories, it doesn't just happen once. It happens, we have to do it over and over and over again. And usually in different types of settings, like we, we start to first tell the story to ourselves or we tell it to like a trusted person. And then slowly we can start telling the story in different versions of it to different audiences. So, and each time I think it can have less, it has less power over us. I, I'm wondering. What do you think helps start that process of telling that story, of taking that leap, mm. of trusting that it's going to be okay? You know, I think for me, it really just depends on where I am. So I think there are kind of two different places I can be if I'm feeling shame trigger, sort of the, the buttoned up place or the like, uh, uh-oh, I'm underwater place. So I think when I feel triggered and I don't have words, I always imagine myself waving a little flag, like my head bobbing above water and waving a little flag. And I think when I'm in a place where I'm, I'm triggered and um, I need to talk about it, I usually turn to my spouse or there are a couple of good friends who I can basically wave the flag to and say, I'm in the place or I'm not doing okay. And uh, start from that very vulnerable, uh, not together. I haven't even really identified what is up place. So that's a place that I turn to my very closest people for in part, because of course I trust them and I can be vulnerable with them, but also because they have a lot of context. So there's a lot I don't have to explain. And I think then there, there's 
another much larger group of people in my life, like I think of you, Sean, as a ministerial colleague being in this group of people where if I have a little more words and I can better articulate what is up for me and I, I just need you to know what's going on or maybe we're, you know, in a car driving somewhere and having a conversation, I think something that helps me take the leap into telling, you know, putting words to my shame or telling a story that involves shame is a reframing inside my own mind where I imagine if someone else took the leap and shared this kind of story with me, how would I receive them? And I, that never fails to just be magic for me. I use that tool every day um, because it's very effective. <laughs> We're a lot harder on ourselves yes. than we would be on another person. Exactly. And we judge ourselves so much more harshly. And, you know, I can't think of a lot of things that another person would bring to me um, where I would, I can't think of hardly anything where I would judge them the way I judge myself. So saying these words, I'm like, you know, I think we've all read these things in the books, uh, perhaps, but uh, that's a practice that is endlessly fruitful for me. So it basically depends on whether or not I have the wherewithal to step outside of myself and kind of see myself from another perspective. Well, I think it's important to recognize that some of the time we can't do that. Like there's a way that shame clouds our own perceptions of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And like we need, like we need to be ground in another person's perspective and love and care and like have them help us, whether that's a professional therapist or a close friend, a, a, a community, even a small group can offer like that grounding in which people can offer not advice, but just a grounding perspective and what's going on and what's true. Um, that is sometimes impossible to dig yourself out of the hole by yourself that you need other people's help. Yes. And I think the beauty of that is that, you know, sometimes all it really takes is a witness <laughs> to, to extricate yourself from the shame shack or the shame spiral that you're stuck in. So that's the beautiful part is that, you know, none of us need to have professional training as a therapist, you know, or what have you. There are certain chapters of my life where it's tempting maybe not to feed my relationships or to do mm. other stuff, or you wonder why you show up for the monthly meeting or what have you. And it's, it's important in those other times and those downtimes, you know, to keep feeding relationships or feeding communities. I don't mean for this to sound transactional, but just to say it's always going, you never know where it's going to go, but those relationships and community really help us be humans so well. If one part of the conversation to name is that shame isn't just it's individual. Mm -hmm. It's actually something that we as communities hold. And one of the ways that communities um, can be an agent to bust shame is by doing the same things that we're talking about, like witnessing each other's stories, lifting it up, breaking the, the codes of secrecy and the shadows that exist over what is what we experience shame about. And so one of the practices we're, we're, we've started in this series, Living with Ghosts, is to have members of our community talk about their experiences that have to do with shame, have to do with coming to terms with something hard in their life. 
And today is we're going to hear from Erin Valenti Nelson, who's going to share about her experience uh, of of being raped, which is a, a subject that has a lot of of shame and, and and secrecy attached to it. And yet, we're going to hear about her healing journey as a way for us as a community to know that it's okay to share these sorts of stories. I wanted to provide a content warning ahead of time because this isn't a story that you may be right for everyone to hear. We don't dwell deeply on the incident or of her experience, but it is the foundation for the story of her healing. And so if this isn't the right story for you to hear right now, that's all right. Thanks for listening to this part. You can hit pause. You can go along your day, no judgment, no shame. One of the ways that we deal with shame is at the pace that we can and trusting sometimes that if it's not the right time, that's okay. And I'm just so grateful for Aaron's vulnerability and openness to share her story, which isn't linear. It's not straightforward, but it is a story of healing. And, and she shares where after six or seven years after the incident, she's found herself. And it's really quite beautiful. I'm going to turn it over to Aaron. I'm going to say bye to Elaine. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Shannon. We're going to hear Aaron's story. When I was 21, I was held at gunpoint and raped by a stranger. I had gone home with a guy I knew, and he was there. One thing led to another. He was charged with kidnapping, rape, stealing the gun he used, and he only ended up being charged for stealing the gun. And like, as a survivor of sexual assault, everyone said, you're so lucky. He actually went to prison. But for me, it was like, well, he didn't go to prison for what he did to me, at least. No, when you're 21, you are just learning about the world. And so I was really able to experience finding myself at a young age and then finding a lot of like self-love and self-compassion at a young age. It sucks that it took like a traumatic experience, but I do think that it helped me become an adult a little bit quicker. The, <clears throat> the first stage was allowing myself to be in it and to feel it. You know, there were a lot of sad days <clears throat> and I allowed myself to feel the depression and feel the anxiety and go to therapy every week and really just like be in it as humans don't want to feel the uncomfortable things. But I knew that if I wanted a chance of like having a vibrant life. I had to feel it. And I didn't put a timeline on how long I could feel it. And so it was years, you know, years of this, like really anxious, scared to go out in public, sad, kind of hermit lifestyle. But I think that was a very important beginning phase to my healing to just allow myself to be in the dark place. And I had one friend in particular who I would come home from work. I was working in early childhood half days. So I would come home and I would spend the rest of the day until bedtime with her. And 
she knew I needed it. And to have someone there and to have someone who I didn't have to talk about it with, but we could just like do low key things together really helped. I'm so grateful for that friend. Me too. Me too. I'll call her after this. <laughs> yeah, it's for someone just to be able to sit with that is a real, I mean, surreal gift. Yeah. Especially in a time where, you know, interpersonal relationships were so confusing and so hard and just so unsafe feeling. Yeah. To have, to have her meant everything. And then the other piece was my connection to spirit and at that time, I hadn't had, you know, my spiritual awakening yet, but I, I had a very profound experience like during the assaults and I knew that something bigger and greater than me was watching over me and keeping me safe. It felt like there was light at the end of the tunnel, even if I couldn't quite see it yet. So if that was the first kind of chapter, what was the next? The next chapter was getting the F out of that town. And here comes Fort Collins. I knew I wanted to be in Fort Collins and I knew that I could find myself here and I could make a community. And so here I came, I had a job lined up in a childcare center and I was just going to work and make friends. The town I, it happened in is very small. So it's like, okay, you drive by this neighborhood where it happened, or you see the face of someone you saw that night before it happened. And so there were a lot of these triggers. So being able to move to this town where I didn't know anybody barely allowed me to just like do some extra healing and figure out who I wanted to be moving forward. What did you find? Um, I found foothills. <laughs> I didn't mean, I, I, I didn't mean to set it up like that. I swear. <laughs> It was perfect though, like truly, like Foothills is such a big part of my life in Fort Collins in that community, right? Like I came here to build community for myself. I didn't think I was going to find it in a church and I did. And I found a wonderful husband and really cool new friends. I found my voice. I mean, I was able to tell my story to the legislatures of Wyoming, a bunch of like crusty old white guys and get this civil protection order put in place. There was not one. And so we really helped fill that gap and it was invigorating. Like it brought life back to me to be able to share my story. People listen and then like change was made from it. I moved to Fort Collins, like leading with that story. I'm a survivor. Here's my voice. And I needed that. I needed to have a couple of years of doing that. And now in my healing process, I don't quite have to lead with that story. It's not the only thing that defines me. 
and that feels good too. And I found myself, like I found who I am becoming. I want to hear more about that person you're becoming. Um, a little bit witchy, pretty spiritual, um, kind of snarky and it's fun. It's especially like becoming a mom too. Motherhood is a transformation in and of itself. I feel like I'm growing up so I can see these, these pieces of my story layering on top of each other in such a beautiful way. If you were to give someone who maybe is not going through the exact same thing as you, but is, is coming to terms with a really um, violent moment in their life, what would you tell them? I would tell them to find a therapist and go regularly and lean, lean on the people who are there for you. You know, when something really traumatic happens for me personally, it, it meant a lot of my relationships ended. A lot of people are afraid of sexual assault in particular. It's it's too much for them to handle. And so I, I really lost a lot of friends. So leaning into the friends and the family who are there is the best thing. What, as you kind of look back at that journey, what do you make of it? I feel really proud of myself. Proud of all of the hard work and all of the sad days and all of the not sad days. I'm proud of myself. I actually had this really beautiful moment this spring where I was able to forgive my perpetrator. I read this book, a friend I went to high school with just wrote, it's called The Three Mothers. And it's about Martin Luther King Jr., James Baldwin and Malcolm X, their moms, and just like their journeys and how these really prominent black men, how they're work that they did was all thanks to their moms and it gave me so much insight into the experience of a black man how racism is like so tangled up and I don't know why I don't know how but like I was reading I was listening to the audiobook I was like planting seeds because it was in the spring and I just like it like released and I, I forgave him and I didn't think I was ever going to be able to forgive him. It was really beautiful. And so I feel like that's like this other piece of the healing, right? Like I did all this like therapy and, but then like things can come back up and then you heal it again or you heal it in a different way. And you know, I think we're seven or eight years, seven years out now. And it, I don't know if they think I'm all better now. Um, but I'm not like, I, I don't think I'll ever be like all better. I don't think that's how it works. If you're not all better, what are you, right? I am alive. I'm living. And life isn't always easy or beautiful. But you're living it. That's fucking beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> thank you for sharing this. Thank you for reaching out and thinking of asking. Round below 
I have so much appreciation for Erin in sharing her story and for Elaine in her, I just remarkable honesty about the human experience and, and the humor that comes through. You know, even though I'm on the other side of producing these, each of these conversations really gives me something too. Well, that about wraps up this episode of The Deeper Podcast. Everything we do is because of our community. And so we want to thank you for listening. We'd also love to hear from you, especially if you're not already connected to our Foothills space. If you're tuning in from Albuquerque or France or South Africa or some of the other places that I see our podcast statistics show, I'd love to know who you are. Reach out to us at Deeper Pod, that's D-E-E-P-E-R-P-O-D at foothillsuu.org and just say, hey, you know, there's hundreds of you that are listening to this podcast each week. It would be great to get to know some of you. Next week on the podcast, we're going to be diving into how we can move past old stories, especially as it comes to the stories of Thanksgiving and we can break them open and find something new. As always, we're grateful to have you and thanks for listening.